Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on the show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about specific science-related topics, such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today, we're joined with Scott Fulbright. Probably no relation to the Fulbright Scholarship, but you never know. He is the CEO and co-founder of Living Inc. out in Denver, Colorado. Living Inc. is a biomaterials company developing next-generation ink encodings using algae cells to create sustainable pigments for renewable, biodegradable, and safe ink products. We get to we get in we get into all that and a little bit of some parenting advice at the end. So anyone's ever thinking about kids, uh, we kind of get into that a little bit. Before we jump in, I just wanted to give a quick thank you to Dr. John H, who gave the podcast a five star review, saying excellent content. I just want to thank you for leaving a review, and I hope you enjoy this episode as well. So let's get into it. So you named the place Living Ink, it, and I feel like that's weirdly perfect. So I'm curious, like as someone who sucks at naming things. Like my the name of my podcast is very simplistic, and I, my girlfriend had to help with me on that. How did you come up with that name? It, does it come from anything, or did you guys just kind of brainstorm? Like that's smart. Let's go that route. Yeah. Well, we uh, my co-founder and I, yeah, we we were best friends during grad school, and so we'd always just kind of have conversations. And when we started the company, we were always uh, having conversations on what what the name would be and what we actually want to do. And so the first product that we actually we, that we worked on was an ink that would literally grow when it was exposed to sunlight. And so the original name was Grow Your Message because you could actually write a message and have it grow. And then we changed it to kind of a more techie name, which is Living Ink Technologies. So yeah, just a lot of conversations and kind of going with our gut on, on what feel, felt right and what didn't feel right. It works though. It, like this is exactly right. I like it. I appreciate that. It's good. <laughs> I mean, we are, uh, we're, tra- we're trained scientists. What we found is we're not great marketers, but when you have enough conversations and reflect enough, you kind of come up with, with something that's good once in a while. <laughs> yeah, get like a Don Draper on your... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why Denver, Colorado? Like you were in China, you were in Michigan. Why the mountains? Why'd you pick that as a place to build your, your, your life? Yeah, just a little background about me. I guess I uh, yeah did, did, did uh, my undergrad at Michigan State University. That's where I kind of got exposed to working with algae and... Uh, and so one of the postdocs who I was working with ended up getting a job down in uh, Texas. So I moved down there, worked for a uh, uh, LG biotech company doing biofuels and bioproducts. And then after that, um, after a couple of years, I actually went back to school at Colorado State University and actually worked with the company while I was up there. And so that's what got me to Colorado originally. And I really liked it. I liked the, the work-life balance and the culture of Colorado. The weather's great. Um, my wife actually moved out here several years ago. So yeah, we, we we located in Denver and we like everything about it. You know, we also got a state grant that helped us get through last year and kind of build out some of our products. So there's been good state support and um and we just we just really like Colorado. Isn't it like very mountainous? Yeah, yeah. Like I was at a location yesterday where it was in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So it's pretty fun. Uh, I kinda like that the mountains we go, you know. Before we had kids, we skied quite a bit and went, did summer trips up up in the mountains and fished and things like that. So yeah, no, it's a very high quality of, of life here in Colorado. And I think people people think it snows a lot, but realistically in Denver, you know, it probably only snowed about you know a dozen times this year, and it didn't even get that much snow. So uh, it's it's a pretty nice pretty nice uh, weather wise too. There's a funny there's a funny story that Denver Denver was founded when like the the pilgrims got to the top of the mountain. 
like to that portion and saw that the mountain was still like really far in the distance and they were just like i give up <laughs> we're making <laughs> <laughs> our land here you know that makes a lot of sense i can actually uh uh, you know, I was wondering that, you know, but that, that makes sense. If I were them, I would not want to go any further, further past the, uh, the foothills, <laughs> especially without a, without a Jeep. It's a good thing that we have the interstate road, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> mountains kind of freak me out. I always feel like I'm going to fall off them. Even if I'm not near it, I just will feel like I'll fall off the side. It's like a cartoon. Like I'll literally just, but that's my problem. But <laughs> <laughs> I prefer the ocean more than mountains. So I'm with you on that. But uh, but yeah, for the me- for the for the meantime, we uh yeah we we do a little mountain a little mountain time. <laughs> that snow is fun, and you can I haven't skied, but snowboarding has always been kind of fun for me. But yeah, back, back yeah. to your your startup, <laughs> not about Denver. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't like a PR thing for Denver. But uh, so uh, timing is always one of those things that determines whether or not something's going to be a success or not. Like so, what made you feel like this was the right time to make Living Ink? Yeah, so so basically basically the idea that we have that we've been working on is that traditional ink is basically you can think of it as like kind of a a glue with a pigment. The pigment adds the color. And that the colors that are currently made, you know, if, if someone's in, you know in their office or at home, you look around your wherever you're at and you realize that there's color everywhere and there's ink everywhere on books and and uh, magazines and newspapers and so basically what you're seeing is petroleum all those pigments are derived from mostly petroleum and so what we decided to do is instead of using a petroleum-based product that's not biodegradable we're going to use bio-based pigments from algae that are biodegradable safe renewable and all those good kind of sustainability uh, features. And so, you know, it's kind of funny. We have an advisor on our team that worked at HP for several decades. And he was joking with us that, you know, if you guys had done this 10 years ago, you wouldn't have a chance. He's like, right now, I think you got a really good chance. And, you know, I think a lot of this comes back to the eco trends where people are realizing that we need to protect planet. We need to make things that are biodegradable, that are safe for our, for, for humans in general, especially kids. So I, you know, I think there's been a movement with the consumer. And I think that's what's pushed these companies to kind of have these sustainability milestones that they're trying to hit. And so, you know, I think I think right now it is the perfect time for us to be doing this this product. You know, we talk to several multinational companies every every week, and you know, they're all looking for innovative, sustainable solutions for some of their challenges. So that, I think that's why we're we're timed pretty well at the moment. I think we're at the the point where people are willing to pay more for for quality products versus just mass producing uh, crap. I was say yeah, word. yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I think that I think that people are willing to, to 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 pay more for a safer, better, more sustainable product or packaging. And and I also think that you know there's a lot of competition out there in these spaces. And I think that you know what I, I get a sense from a lot of these multinational companies is that a lot of this is truly about sustainability and trying to hit some of these milestones. But a, you know most of it's about kind of brand recognition. And a lot of people want to be leaders and. And that eco trend, so that people think they're, you know, innovative and 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 eco friendly. And I think that, you know, there's there's companies that I think we can all point to, like a Patagonia, where you know when you buy something that you're you're getting something that's probably the most eco friendly product out there. I think there's a lot a lot about the brand and, and kind of communicating what they're doing um, that's different than their competitors. Yeah, differentiation, especially as we get more to a globalized economy. I think there was uh, the, the Elon Musk, the SpaceX guy. He, mm-hmm. he, was, he put like a, a plan forward to where like you could get anywhere on the planet in like 30 minutes to an hour. And it's like, oh, that's crazy. Just imagine, you know, with, with that type of competition, like you'd have to really stand out. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. What is the most technically advanced thing that you know that for like someone like me or someone listening, they'd be like, 
well, it's magic. I don't know how that works, but like, like what's like the thing that you're like, wow, I can understand this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that, uh, I think that there's, there's something that we've been kind of working on a little bit. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, for, for people in the, with a molecular biology background, it, it might not seem that special, but I think for, for, uh, folks not too deep in that space, it's, it's pretty interesting where, you know, what you, you know, you can basically take these genes or DNA from, from other organisms that exist. So for example, if there's a certain color that we like that, that a flower makes, we can take those genes from the flower. We can then stick those genes into algae and those algae cells will then produce that color. Um, and I, th- I think what's, 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 what's really cool about these technologies that, that are being developed is that you could actually grow a huge pond, think of a huge lake or a pond full of algae, and it's all green, and then you could sprinkle in uh, a chemical, and, uh, and that would allow those genes to then be expressed. So you could go from a really you know, bright green pond of algae to a bright red pond of algae within a couple of hours. So I think it's kind of a mix of synthetic biology with these, well, it's called like an inducible promoter. And so I think that's cool because you can actually on demand create the product that you're looking to make. Um, so that, 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 to me, that's something that I've been really excited about. But son, I'm, I'm a big fan of genetics. I, I um, am, am big into bee breeding and, I, and there's a number, number of instances where I, I like did punnett squares trying to figure out how to make genetically superior bees. So yeah, I, I nice. love that stuff. How could I, like, how could someone like me who has an interest in genetics and that, that type of thing, how could we learn more? Because I think in our in our pregame, the we, we mentioned you, you mentioned that like PhDs are are sometimes very frustrating. So I'm just curious, is there like a way to gain that applicable knowledge, like on how to apply something and the the theoretical knowledge at the same time? You know, I think there's a bunch of resources online now between Khan Academy and um, in some of these educational. I'm always blown away that you can go on YouTube and basically sit in on a MIT presentation from a professor if you want to learn about a certain subject matter. So I know there's a lot of that in terms of the synthetic biology. A lot of when I defended my PhD, a lot of information that I was learning, I'd go into some really basic sites, like even like Wikipedia sometimes just to get that high level knowledge of what I need to do. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, you could pick up an old school genetics book, or you could, you know, go into some of these programs that exist, or even Wikipedia and start from their various highest level, like what is DNA? What is a gene? And just kind of keep working your way down into, you know, synthetic biology and metabolic engineering and, and things like that. And, you know, I'm pretty deep in some of these areas, but even I have to go and kind of revisit and go, okay, well, what what is this, you know, chemical again, or what does this gene do and things like that. So I think there's a lot of kind of tools out there to, to learn this stuff, even if you don't have a PhD in molecular biology. I, I think it's perfectly fine to be an expert and stuff to look things up. Most doctors, when you go to the hospital or, you know, you see your family doctor, they'll Google things. Like, <laughs> like every doctor I've ever been to, they'll literally just start Googling what it is and they'll be like, oh, okay. And it's like, you know, I, you go to a doctor because they're an expert. Like they know how to put it all together. Like don't you don't need to have all the answers. You just got to know how to figure it out. Yeah, but, exactly. Or I just exactly. had really crappy doctors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that they do exist, but there's also good doctors. But yeah, no, I think I'm probably a scary patient because I always ask, you know, what the what the actual mechanism is in terms of what that what that chemical is going to do to my body, and I kind of put them back in their heels. Where you know, a lot of people don't know that even if you studied that, you have to go back and look and, and look that up. So yeah, I actually did have a. Doctor at uh, uh, during grad school had to go to his computer, and I, I do think he used Google to look up what the uh, what the actual mechanism was of the drug. <laughs> you, you seem like me. I, I've actually done that to doctors as well. They couldn't answer me though. Like they they yeah. literally didn't know. And I was like, then don't put it in my body. If you don't yeah, know what yeah. it is, <laughs> you can't yeah, answer you, that you, question. Go make a phone call and come back. Yeah, to me. exactly, exactly. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
fun times. But the, <laughs> the, so when it comes to uh, you mentioned a, a, a component of your team, one of your founding team, but I'm always curious, why is your team special? How did you find each other? But more like like what's special and what makes it you think that the team you have is going to be the people that can like deliver this to where you want to be? Yeah, you know, I think I think my co-founder is pretty obvious because, um, you know, I, I was joking to tell the story, but, you know, I think he was probably in his mid 30s and I was in my early 20s when we started grad school. And so we both he, he was a science teacher for about seven years before going back to grad school. I'd worked at a company and a couple of universities and we both kind of joke. It's our it was our first day of school, almost like kindergarten where you get dressed up and you go into class and you meet your new friends and who you're going to be friends with the next several years. And him and I met at 8 a.m. at chemistry class, both said we wanted to use microbes to make the world a better place. But we didn't really know what that meant at the time. So we went we went through a lot of classes, became really good friends and we were always brainstorming. I mean, ideas, which, you know, for me was fun from the intellectual curiosity standpoint, but also just kind of the not being bored. We just were always dreaming up, you know, crazy things we could do. Um, and then one day the living ink, you know, using algae as ink came up and we kind of actually, you know, grabbed a hold of that and, and took it, took it, um, took it forward. So that, that's kind of an obvious one because it was just one of my best friends who was in grad school with me. You know, the others, you know, for us, you know, we're in such a specific area that, you know, when, when we want to hire someone for a job, you know, there's several labs around the world that we can email and say, you know, who's been working in this space. And uh, one of the individuals that we hired, um, she had, you know, had a great track record, had a lot of success doing what we wanted to get done. So that was pretty obvious. You know, the other person who I think is a little bit different is our ink chemist who hadn't really done too much biology before. And I always joke that we have an online relationship because I'd reached out to him through LinkedIn and just started having conversations with them. And then, you know, six months we got on the phone. And then 10 months later, we were, you know, sending material to each other and working together. So that's been really great because he comes from more of the organic chemistry kind of ink manufacturing side of things. So he brings in this whole knowledge set that we don't have. Um, so those are some of the most fun conversations is um, just bouncing ideas off each other or getting insights. So, you know, looking back, it's, it was pretty obvious who, who we're going to, you know, who the main group was going to be when we got going. But, you know, a lot of the stuff would go with our gut. We had talked to probably like eight other ink chemists that, you know, all had good credentials, but we just didn't move forward for various reasons. So a lot of that is, is kind of, uh, yeah, what's your gut instinct on how this person's going to work with you and, and, and make things work? You got to listen to that gut biome. So the... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is there anyone left? Like, is there, like, do you have the A team or is there like, you got to pick up some more people? Yeah, we're, we're going to, you know, basically right now we're making small batches of ink and selling that to printers and end users. We've got a nice core team to do very the very basics of what we need done. We have a National Science Foundation grant that was uh, a little over a million dollars of funding the last uh, couple of years. And then probably later this fall, we'll be looking to raise some private investment to scale up operations. Um, so a lot of us on this team right now are all very kind of fundamental uh, science and innovation folks, I guess. And we don't have much experience in uh, manufacturing and operations. So uh, we'd be hiring people that, that know how to run the equipment that we'll, we'll be getting. So yeah, there, there's a lot more expanding team-wise that we'll, we'll have to do. Is there like a phase one finish line? Like, is there a place where you want to go where you'll be like, okay, we're successful. Now let's work on the next success. And if so, what what is... What is there? What does the first finish line look like? That's a great question. If I want to raise money in the, the fall, I got to be able to answer that. So yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> that um, I think that 
you know, one one of the the major tasks is we're we're basically doing some R and D right now on one of this the black pigment that we're working on. And so basically, when you when you look around your 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 room right now, if you see anything that's black, like black plastic or rubber, that's carbon black. So that's just a petroleum. That's just oil that's been basically turned into a, a solid pigment and put into those various plastics and rubbers and, and, and ink and things like that. So we have a bio-based renewable carbon black product. And what we're doing right now is testing it and, re- and, and really understanding how it, how it performs compared to carbon black, traditional carbon black. And, and once we have some of that, that baseline information, um, we'll be ready to kind of scale up that process and, um, and make larger volumes of pigment and um, ink uh, products. So that's kind of our biggest thing. We'll probably, we'll probably have those answers by the end of August. They're pretty close. That's only a couple months. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then we put a little cush room in there for, for mix-ups or errors and things like that. So hopefully before then, but no later than. What, have there been really big challenges? And if so, what, what are they? Yeah, we've had, um, you know, you know, we started the company in 2013 and we had a different product than, than what we're currently doing right now. So we had some challenges with the first product and we kind of pivoted. And right now there's, there's, uh, you know, there's there's challenges in a lot of different ways, depending on where kind of in that supply or value chain you look at. But you know, making sure that there's enough raw material, so enough algae out there that that we can use to to create our product, all the way to matching chemical characteristics that people want to expect. You know, we talk to some of these companies and they say, I want I want a more renewable, a more biodegradable, a more sustainable product, and I want it to be cheaper. And so for us, it's kind of going, okay, how do we get you know a product that's at the price point of a petroleum-based product? which we've been working on actually, you know, decreased our cost by two orders of magnitude in the last two years. And then, you know, how do we give it the same characteristics so it can't fade? And that's the biggest hit with biopigments is that if I take algae, green algae cells and I put them on a piece of paper and I put them in the sunlight, they're going to fade a little bit faster than traditional petroleum-based pigments. And so um, that's some of our challenges right now is, um, you know, creating science that will make sure that those pigments don't fade. Or, identifying a product market fit where we say, you know, when you go to Starbucks and you're drinking a cup of coffee and there's a coffee sleeve on there with a green Starbucks logo, maybe that logo doesn't need to stay colorful in sunlight for five years. <laughs> maybe maybe because it's a disposable product, people are okay with it, doing, you know, using it for a couple hours and then recycling it. Um, because, you know, a lot of this, you know, a lot of this stuff as we were talking about in our in our pregame conversation was um, we've kind of over-engineered a lot of things in our world. We make these disposable coffee sleeves that are made to last forever, and they're made to, you know, sit in sunlight and not fade. The inks are not supposed to fade for, you know, several years. And so, do we need that? You know, can we make? We we actually had a, you know, in our laboratory, it it was kind of an error until we talked to a marketing expert who said, "That's genius. How did you guys come up with that?" But we had this ink where you actually could put it in sunlight, and it would fade within like an hour. And so, it was literally biodegrading in front of your eyes. And so it didn't just say, you know, you could have a coffee sleeve that didn't just say biodegradable, but you'd be drinking the coffee and all of a sudden this, the ink would start disappearing because it was truly biodegradable. And so, you know, from, from a science standpoint, I think that's pretty neat. I think there's a cool marketing opportunity. It's just, you know, finding those right customers to go, that is neat, you know, because it is a risk to do something different. Um, it's a risk to have your brand disappear. Um, so I spend a lot of my time having conversations with end users, um, you know, big companies about what they expect their ink or pigments to do um, in trying to identify if we have something that, that could be used in their product line. I would think that quality should cost. I, I, I wouldn't think that you should, if you have all those great things going for it, like I, as an end consumer, I'd be willing to pay, you know, a little bit more like 10, you know, 15% more, if not more than that, to ensure that I have those type of qualities in my products. So 
So I, I don't feel like it should be like all those things and then it's cheaper. Well, you are a, uh, you're an unusually caring person now. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're, I think you would fit the, the, uh, I mean, I, I think basically from our market research, what we find is that Europeans are definitely willing to pay more. You know, their government puts more regulations on things. The actual consumer is willing to pay more for a higher quality product that's better for the world. I think Americans are kind of typically lagging behind, uh, where it's usually about um, price point. But I do think that there's been more emphasis on eco and green. Um, it's just interesting because we've talked to you know a lot of big companies, and it's just really interesting. There's usually three things that they talk about. Um, one is price point. One is how fast can you scale or how big can you scale. Um, and the third one is how eco-friendly are you? And those three things can get matched in different priorities. So if you talk to a Patagonia, they're, they're going to say, well, tell me about your eco-friendliness characteristics. Okay, now tell me about scale and now tell me about price point. You talk to a different company that maybe doesn't really put um, a high level on, on kind of eco-friendliness and um, they're going to say, well, what's your price point? You know, if you can't match what we currently have, then there's no reason for us to go into scale and eco-characteristics. So it's just, you know, that, that's just market research on our side. And I totally agree with you. You know, the first people who use our ink um, are going to pay more for it because, you know, they're getting something that's innovative and different than what's currently out there on the market. Um, and, at, you know, since they're an early adopter, um, they're going to get, you know, some more value and probably have to pay more for it. So um, I, I agree with you. It's just as we scale, can we keep those price points where they are right now? And that's just something that we'll, uh, we can make guesses on, but we won't know until we just do it. <laughs> there might be like a technical term for this, but I'm just going to call it the, te- the Tesla model where you start with something really premium and then you slow you use that those profits to build a cheaper and cheaper version of it is that essentially what you're doing yeah yeah you know i, I yeah that, that that that's that is that is the goal you know we've got a couple of different models moving forward one is that you know we're a kind of a, a lower volume higher priced specialty ink product the other model that we have especially for our black pigment is we're going to be a specialty ink company for the next two years and then after that we'll be a mainstream competing with the status quo at the same price point and so um, you know, higher volumes, um, lower price. And so those are the, the two, two, um, conversations that we have, which, you know, is really dependent on who is willing to buy the product, how much raw material can you secure to, to make the products, you know, and that, that's, um, the supply chain that, that we, we work on pretty much every day here. I was just thinking of different markets you could go after. And maybe this is like a, a silly one, but you know, there's people that always protest about environmental things. You can mm-hmm. sell it to them because then it's like if you don't put this on your sign, I'm going to go online and tell people you didn't want to use a biodegradable. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So exactly. I, I like it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that um, that's funny. And I think that, you know, one of the challenges that we face, and this goes back to the the real the marketers and, and people that can tell stories is, you know, it's funny because I get packages in the mail at my house or the business and um Every single piece of material, package-wise or letter-wise, has some kind of eco-label of some sort, whether it's soy ink or, or you know, sustainably forest, forested paper or whatever. And so, so you know, I, I think it's, I think that that's one of our challenges, you know, that, that we're trying to work with a, a pretty big company right now to kind of be the first big company to use our product and really tell the story of what we're truly doing and how it's different mm-hmm. um, versus just slapping on a a label that says soy ink, you know, where people go, people, you know, they, you know, don't, don't even know what, you know, soy ink is, um, or why it's better than, you know, um, uh, traditional ink. And so, you know, I think that, I think there's an educational component that's really difficult to communicate, especially in this day and age when things move so fast and people have so little time to actually think about things. <laughs> um, here's another idea, but based on what you just said, the, 
you could send them a postcard and you could and you could say like, hey, put this put this in the middle of the kitchen table while you're eating. And as you eat, the ink will biodegrade and you'll see science right before your eyes. And then they can get a little bit of education on the back of it. I, I like that idea. I'm going to write that one down. Yeah. <laughs> That's Trademark. good. We, we'll, have to go off, we'll have to go offline and have another brainstorming session here with, with all your good ideas. <laughs> so how does the algae ink actually work? And how do you transport it so it doesn't degrade? Like, how do, how do you transport it so it only degrades when you want it to degrade versus degrading before you want it to degrade? Yeah. So, so well, so basically, to, to, to clarify, uh, so that, that was one of the ideas that we had with the kind of the, the ink that would biodegrade really fast. We actually don't. We didn't move forward with that product at all. Um, so, so really, the, the, the major product that we're focused on right now is this black pigment um, that, that is algae-derived, um, and, and it will... Um, act like any other pigment or ink that you typically use. So right now we print with a company called Eco Enclose in Colorado. They take our ink, which is looks like black ink. Um, so basically, you know, it looks like a thick thick water, but it's really black because there's pigments in there. They dump it into their printer, and they can run cardboard packaging through their their printer, and our ink will print on their package. And our ink works like any other ink that they would use. So there's no um, there's no issue with using it or, you know, having to do special things because it's algae ink versus regular ink. And then they print packaging. So they've actually printed tens of thousands of boxes. Um, actually, some of our boxes are were printed by a, a company called Bedrock Sandals, and they sell their product in REI. So I was able to go to Denver REI a couple of weeks ago look at the shoebox and see our ink on on the uh, on display. So 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 the way it works is it works just like any other ink that you would typically use, which is exciting because um with the black product there's no fading, you get really nice black pigments, but that that goes back to one of the you know one of the challenges is how do you communicate that this is different than traditional ink and you know I think Bedrock did a pretty good job because they put a big thing of this is algae ink on the front and things like that so people could actually go oh this is different but the way it works is really you know we use the entire algae cell as a pigment um so sometimes people will take algae or plant matter they'll extract the colors from the, the plant material and then they'll take those colors as dyes and you and what we've decided to use is basically fill those algae cells with colors and use the entire algae cell as a pigment so the pigment actually lays on the substrate so it just gets laid on top of the paper and communicates a message to you. And so that's kind of one of our, our value propositions. And that, that kind of goes into the whole story of using nature. Algae cells, when you see algae growing in a lake or a pond or a pool, you see that green, but really those cells can be as small as one micron. So really, really tiny. And so nature's made these really tiny cells, and we're basically using those little cells as vessels to hold our pigments um, so that we can make printer ink. And so um, I think that's one of the cool kind of value propositions of... Uh, um, of what we're doing. So if you were to take like normal printer ink versus your printer ink, how big of a difference is price? So right now, actually, we can get down to a price point that is, uh, you know, pretty competitive in the market actually right now. And there's a couple different ways that we can do that. That's been a, a long process to figure out because before it was, it was much more expensive. Um, but yeah, no, we can get down to a, uh, a price point that's pretty competitive in the market. I think what's difficult about talking about printer ink is that there's a lot of different types of ink out there. There's a lot of different types of printing. So typically, pe people think of their digital printer at home. Um, we have the capability of making that ink. That's not what we're making right now. We're making an ink that's, uh, I don't want to get too technical, but it's called flexographic printing. It's like a lot of the packages that we are exposed to at the store every day, is that, that those are printed with flexographic printing. And so those printers typically buy the ink. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect of, you know, let's say someone like Nike 
Nike doesn't buy ink. Nike works with a printer who buys ink. So, you know, I think this goes into kind of understanding the supply chain. Um, and this is a good demonstration of, hey, we've got this great product. Um, everybody wants it. But like the printers don't really benefit from our product as much as the end user that can market it, right? So the printers aren't that gung-ho as much as the end users who actually have a brand that people know, like Nike. Everyone knows Nike. If they use LG Ink, they go, oh, wow, look what Nike's doing. No one knows. Nobody can name a printer in the world, you know? So, so I think that that's been, um, you know, one of my, one of my biggest parts of my job in the last you know, year or two is just really understanding that supply chain and, and who actually cares and who is willing to move forward um, with a novel eco product. Are there dream partners like that, that, I don't know, maybe Nike is that person, but I was just curious. Yeah, yeah, there are, there definitely are. And for various reasons, depending on what we're looking for. But, you know, I, I think that those early adopters, um, you know, I think people really respect the REI to the Patagonias of the world, the people, the, the companies that actually truly are trying to make things better from a sustainability standpoint. So yeah, no, we, we have a, a list and we've actually been talking to a lot of those, those companies. You know, I, I think the challenge is, is kind of, um, you know, like you just said, you know, ideas are cheap, executions, everything. And so, you know, we actually make small batches of ink. We sell that ink to various printers and end users. Uh, but then you get somebody who's a larger company who's like, okay, when could you get me, you know, 20 tons? <laughs> and you're like, whoa, that's a big order, at least for a small startup like us. So then, you know, then we have to go raise some investment and kind of scale up or get innovative on the way that we do that. So you could toll manufacturer, which means you have, you know, another a third party group actually make those, make some of the material that you need, things like that. So that's kind of where we're at as a company is how do we make that next leap to go from, you know, selling, you know, several thousand pounds of, of ink every year to selling tons of ink every year. With this technology, is there anything else you'd love to do? That's usually my brain's always running because I think that there's, I think there's so many different solutions out there in the world and there's so many different challenges that, that can be solved. Um, you know, I think with what we're doing right now, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, we basically have this carbon black alternative. So we can make ink products, which we've proven that we can do. But I, you know, then you start thinking about cosmetics and, you know, black mascara, that's, that's carbon black. So could, could we go into the cosmetics industry? You know, textiles is one of the most environmentally, um, kind of negative industries in the, in, in, in the world. And so can we go into textiles and actually print ink or, or dye textiles with some of the technologies that are developing? So, you know, there's a lot of different industries, um, you can take colorants into. Um, you know, beyond the colorant space, you know, there's a lot of brainstorming that I do that's just kind of fun, you know, learning about science and trying to combine different things that, you know, I, I feel a little bit of pressure with this company and trying to make it successful, but I also understand that it's hard to, you know, execute a product and make it successful. And um, we're learning how to start a company and how to protect intellectual property, how to build the team. And so everything that we learn right now, we can spin off into another uh, idea in the future. And I think that, that that's the plan. So yeah, there'll be some other things I'm sure we're working on in, in several years. I said this in the pregame or in the interview, we've spoken a lot, but the, the there was a component of innovation and in how it takes, you take several things, you bring them together in an interesting way. Like I wouldn't have thought about mascara. I've never had to use it, but it's like, it, it is an interesting way to, to apply what you have going on. Well, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story on that. You know, I mean, I didn't either, to be honest. You know, <laughs> when I, when I, when I was in, you know, we were talking about PhDs earlier and, you know, I, I really was very, very frustrated during my PhD because I wanted to get out into the real world and learn about real world challenges. And, you know, when I touch something or I see something, I want to know how it's made and what that material is and just like very curious. And I was stuck in my little lab bench doing the same experiment for like two years straight. And so when, you know, once I got out of grad school, I just kind of, 
uh, went crazy at really just kind of trying to understand how the world works. And, you know, I, I think that you can read, but I think having these conversations and listening to these kind of podcasts really kind of open up at least my mind because, you know, we brought on a board, a board member on our, um, uh, at Living Inc. who had a, who had run colorant businesses around the world for various companies. And so he already has this massive knowledge set on the market and colorant. And so like the second conversation I had with him, he's like, okay, great. You're doing inks that, you know, we can figure a way to make that work. Why aren't you guys doing cosmetics? And we're like, that's actually a, it's a great point. Um, and then he knew the numbers, he knew the market sizes, the price per pound, all this stuff. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, bringing, bringing other people on that have different expertise or at least experiences can really just, um, turbocharge things. Um, and I think that again, going back, not, not to hate too much on the, the PhD experience, but, I did every single thing by myself and I got rewarded for doing everything by myself. And I think that, you know, now I'm realizing, wow, you know, I don't have to do everything by myself. I can actually, um, you know, talk to other people or bring other people on that can solve these problems that I have that I don't need to go learn, you know, organic chemistry 101 again. What's the, um, I was just, I'm sorry, but I was thinking about the differences between being a board member and an advisor and I, I didn't know. So I was, uh, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting response. What what is what is? I'm sorry, I got a little distracted thinking about that, but I did hear everything you said. So, um, it's a great question. <laughs> yeah, what is the logic between having someone be a, an advisor over a board member or a board member over an advisor? Is there like I imagine there's a strategic reason why you'd want one or the other? Yeah, uh, it's a good question, and I don't even know if I know the full answer. I do know the kind of high level is that you know. I, I go back and forth with calling our people kind of board members or board of advisors. You know, technically, they're kind of strategic advisors that we gave equity in the company for. So they have shares of the company, but they're still minor, minority shareholders. So they don't have any voting rights. Um, I believe that, you know, they would be considered technically advisors. Board members would be someone that, that owns um, a certain amount of sh- uh, a certain amount of shares where they would have voting rights. Um, so you'd have your board that could actually vote on on. Uh, on issues and things like that. So my co-founder and I still own about 90% of Living Inc. So we are still the majority shareholders. So as long as we're getting along, things are, things are pretty good. <laughs> Actually, at, at one point in our, in our conversation, you re- referenced your co-founder as he was your best friend during your PhD. And I was going to jokingly be like, oh, so what happened? Why are you guys friends? <laughs> but then you corrected the next time you referenced it. Yeah, yeah. We're still, we're still very, very, very good friends. And you know, I, was, I always joke. You know, they, they always say that, you know, whoever you start a company with or if you bring on investors, it's kind of a marriage. And it, it truly is, because when I think about the hours that I spend talking to uh, Steve, my co-founder, it's probably way more per week than even my wife, um, who I live with. But, you know, we both have one and three year olds. So between being parents and starting the business and, and kind of brainstorming, there's always a lot to talk about. Quick question before we jump to the rapid fire one is how many how many board members do you have? How many board people are there? I believe we've got four as of now. So we've got some technical folks, and then we've got some business-minded folks. I think two and two, two technical, two business. That's interesting. The, I was reading a, an article about the, like the different sizes of board members you should have. And like a, a small board is one where you want them, you basically kind of control them, but they're very helpful at the same time. But if you want like, if you want like a really ineffectual board member, like board, you just stack them with too many because then they can never coalition against you. <laughs> So then the CEO is, always, is like the top dog. I was like, oh, that's so smart. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I hate reading stories where like people are brought onto the team and then they kick the CEO out. And it's like, was the CEO really bad or did 
have a like an ego problem. So like, yeah, I, yeah, I always think yeah. like how to protect the CEO. Like I would want that. Yeah. I think, yeah, no, I, that's yeah. a good point. <laughs> yeah, as, as my as my parents would always say to me, I brought you into this world, I can bring you out of it. And I kind of believe yeah. the same thing about founders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's inter- it's an interesting uh it's, I was actually asking someone that that was um kind of an, an advisor mentor to us about, you know, the board and and having in running large companies with large boards and, you know, their, their response is just that sometimes it's really, um, you know, sometimes it's really beneficial to have a board that can kind of guide you. And that, that's the whole idea is kind of guide you down the, the, the route that you think has the best chance of success. So in some ways it's helpful. And in other ways, you know, it's a headache <laughs> in terms of not hitting milestones or, or having to answer certain questions. So I think there's pros and cons, but, you know, I'm all about keeping it small and lean for now because I'm not a huge fan of meetings or spending time talking about things. Uh, I like kind of having those uh, strategic meetings, so we all know what the milestones are, and then we all kind of move forward. Um, you know, there's there's a time and place for meetings, but I'm I'm probably anti meeting than most. No, I agree. You can get a lot of a lot done through emails or a quick call, and then like meetings are really just good for brainstorming or like getting yeah. everyone on the same page if there's like critical things going on. But when there's like yeah. executing to be done, I don't really think you need a meeting to talk about executing when everyone knows what they need to be done. Yeah, like, I always think about that. You know, if, if you've got 20 people in a room for a meeting. And that's a two-hour meeting. You just spent literally spent forty hours at that meeting, so it better have been productive, <laughs> or people better be on the same page because it's a lot of uh, a lot of time and a lot of money going towards uh, people's time. Yeah, I would just why would you have a two-hour meeting? Like I couldn't even. I'd have everything done in like ten minutes. I I, I was like, that's, <laughs> that's a good uh, question. <laughs> did you, did that's, you one have... our, that's one of our learnings today is, is uh, how to keep it how to keep it uh, short and sweet. I think <laughs> you say as we get over an hour. But, but um, yeah, yeah, we started early, so it's, it's all good. But um, yeah, all right. So rapid fire questions, and I added some. You probably heard me type a little bit, but I added some as we were talking. All right, um, here we go. All right, so here, the new ones will be first. So we mentioned PhDs as being somewhat not the best, to put it best. How would you create like a real world PhD, like a real world, like if you if someone came and you're like, hey, teach teach me, Scott, <laughs> mold me, and like and you were like, well. I don't have a lot of time to mold you, but here are the things I'd recommend, like a, like a syllabus of things I'd recommend for you to read or to think about so you can develop yourself and, you know, be your own man or woman. Like, what would your thoughts on that be? Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I think there's different types of PhDs and different types of projects. You know, there, there's some basic science that it's just nitty gritty that just kind of got to kind of grind out the basic science. You know, at least for me, I'm much more applied. Um, so I, it's parts of my PhD actually were very, very... Uh, fulfilling because I actually got to work with a company. And so there was a real problem and I was fulfilling a real need with the products that I was making in, in grad school. And I got to make real kind of molecular probes that were kind of acted as diagnostics. And so I got to learn about DNA because I got to actually get hands-on learning with these probes. So, you know, I, I think part part of my PhD is a, is a, is a, um, a good example of maybe what needs to happen more, which is getting people out of the academic lab or students, I should say, and getting them to work with real world folks, um, one, I think that would help help with, you know, dealing with real world problems and how to interact on a team and, and things like that. And then I think also from the science standpoint, at least for me, when I'm working on an applied problem, um, you know, I wasn't that strong in chemistry, but lately everything I do is chemistry. And now that I have a reason to learn it, I'm learning it much better than I did the first time around when there was no reason to know it really. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that there could be a really nice, um, some training programs to, to, you know, or to work with, with companies, uh, to, 
basically solve challenges that they need and just kind of learn while doing it. And having a mentor that you can actually ask questions to once in a while uh, is is probably in some ways, at least for me, more and more ha- has more impact than going to a hour and a half lecture on you know molecular biology. Mm-hmm. So your recommendation is choose what you want to do. So maybe do some experimenting, you know, figure stuff out, and then find some places nearby that you can convince to let you come in as like an apprenticeship, which I I like that type of stuff. But um, and then just you know do a lot, and then try to be as applicative as possible because it it it. Like I, I'm, a, I agree with you. Like learning esoteric theories isn't as much fun as seeing how they play out in reality. So, I, I, is that like a good summary? Yeah, yeah. I think there's room for both. But yeah, no. I mean, I, I think that, uh, I, I think that is a, a good summary. You know, my my advice to anyone out there that that is, is on that fence of grad school or not is, you know, just get that get that real world experience, and you're gonna find out what you like or don't like. And I'm 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 also a huge believer that you make you make um, what you want out of something. So no matter what school you go to or class you take or job you get, you know, nowadays there's really no excuse um, to not know certain things if you want to know them because you can just go on your computer. So if you work at a company and it's it's monotonous job, but you're working with certain types of material, well, you can go home or you can at the job kind of learn more about that material or similar materials or maybe material science in general. And, you know, there's there's so many ways to get self-educated that, you know, my, my whole thing is just, you know, do stuff and you'll figure out what you like or don't like <laughs> and you'll learn it. There's like this thing out there where it's like too much choice is bad. And so we have like we there's never been a better time to reinvent who you are. So it's like if you're doing something, you're not liking it. You have the you have the Internet, right? Like I did not go to Denver to find Scott. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I messaged, I poked him and he was like, oh, I'd like to talk to you. You know, yeah. Well, when I was at, when I was when I was when I was uh, 20 years old, I was in my dorm room. And I, I said, you know, I was tired of Michigan. It was freezing cold. I was tired of Michigan. And I actually grew up sailing like sailboats. And I went online and I typed in sailing jobs. And I clicked on the first link, which then I clicked on like uh, a, a job offer that was called like Block Island Sailing Job. And I, I sent a quick message. And within three days, I had a job on an island off the East Coast teaching sailing for the summer, making money teaching sailing. And that's actually where I met my wife. So I just, yeah, I agree with you. I think, I think, you know, when people are looking for a change or they don't have a job, it's just such an exciting time that you can just jump on your computer and you can go on LinkedIn and find certain people and do informational interviews. You can find jobs. I mean, to me, it's like, uh, you know, I like what I'm, I love what I'm doing right now. Um, but I'm always eager about what else is out there. What what other programs are out there or jobs or things like that? Because it's just, it's all over the place. I was just thinking like, if they ever make like a biopic about your life, they can basically just outline it like dirty dancing. That's kind of what you yeah. do. You talk exactly. Pro- exactly. Probably with less old women, but you know, yeah. the outline's there. But, um, and I, you got and I, it. And I bet no one puts you in a corner either. So the how, how uh, scientists, I don't know if there's like some really young people who are listening, they'll not, they'll not know what we're talking about. But yeah, uh, we, we talked about how we would love to get scientists more into the innovation and more into the direct application. Are there were there any books or anything that you were reading at the time that kind of helped you make that transition? Um, the transition to the to running the business. Yeah, how'd you? Yeah, um, or is it just really yeah. just trial and error? If it's trial and error, then we can skip it. 
You know, I, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I think I, you know, I, you know, so I took an entrepreneurship class at, at Colorado state and it was mostly just to fulfill the credits and the class was pretty like common sense, like just make stuff that's better that, that people want. (laughs) And there was, there was one slide that one of the professors showed that was like a kid jumping in a pool that said, you just got to jump in. And I just like, it, it kind of like annoyed me at the time. Cause I'm like, that's just such an easy thing. Like you just got to do it. Like, so the whole take home with this last hour, I was like, you just got to do it. Okay. Um, and, but you know, now reflecting, I, I think you just got to do it, you know, at least for certain personality types like myself, which is a visual learner and you just learn by doing, um, you know, I think, you know, I I've sat through accelerator pro- programs through the entrepreneurship class I've read books and I don't think anything can really prepare me at least for, uh, the issues that come up or the successes that come up. Um, so I think it's just kind of, kind of, uh, you know, trial and error in some ways and just doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, you're in good company. The, uh, Benjamin Franklin, the grandfather of America, uh, he, in, in his autobiography said like, most of the things you're going to read in here are going to be really obvious. You're going to have heard them your entire life. The difference that separated me from you is that I did them. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Paraphrasing, yeah. but. Well, yeah. you know, I got to say that, you know, when I, in 2007 or eight, I went to a conference that talked about algae and they were, there was people up on stage talking about, look at algae are all these different colors. They can do all these different things. And I'm sitting there going, oh, you know, there's already people doing it. There's already people doing it. You know, I can't do that because someone's already doing it. And then throughout the years, I realized that no one's doing it. <laughs> like there's people that write papers. There's people that present on it. There's a lot of talk about here's some applications. Here's the potential of the algae world. There's very few people who are just diving in and saying, here's my product. I'm making it. And um, so I think that that's one of the, that's been one of the big take homes for me is that, you know, don't get discouraged if, you know, somebody talks about what you what your idea was or whatever, because there's very few people that actually pursue that idea. And then there's even fewer that actually successfully execute the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I always love. When I'm on like Reddit and stuff, and I always love when people are like so scared about sharing their idea. And it's like I bet if you shared your exact idea and how you want to do it, no one here is going to follow it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, but even if you know, yeah, one they have to they have they have to make the conscious effort. I'm going to try to do that. And then it's you know for me even for the Living Ink, you know, I tell the people that we bring onto our team right now that you know this is like this is like this is a great opportunity because we actually have a little bit of a brand, we actually have a little bit of credibility and some connections in our network that can connect us with, with end users and, uh, and, uh, and other folks that can help. And so, you know, uh, it's taken a long time and a lot of work to be able to get, you know, a network built out, um, where people actually will respond. And, you know, there's still people I LinkedIn message with or email that I don't get responses with. That's fine. But it's taken a long time to get the, uh, the, the few people that, that actually, that actually do. So yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I, I always joke. I, I always laugh when people say this is proprietary. I can't talk about it. I, I doubt that it's, um, that anyone's gonna try to copy it too much, and 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 then definitely not gonna execute on it. But 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 that being said, um, the the deeper we get, the the more uh, times I hear myself saying I can't talk about that. Or <laughs> well, there's, there is, there's like an inflection point on that where it gets too much. But as like an idea for because like, apparently I'll just throw ideas at you. The if you if there's some people you want to connect with, most people like Game of Thrones. So if you can see if they like a show like that. Okay. I just take the example of Game of Thrones. You can send them a raven in the mail and say, uh, you know, like, you know, hey, I sent a raven, raven to get a hold of you because I'd love to talk to Bob, blah, blah, blah. And it'd be like a, like a really funny thing. You use like Game of Thrones letterhead and then you put like, you use that ink <laughs> and it'd be like, watch this, like put this on your wall and watch it to biodegrade. It's, it's so good That's for the environment. Great. Yeah. Not only am I going to give you an icebreaker of the show that you like, but you're going to see a new technology that you've never heard of. Um, yeah, no, I, I, that's good. 
That's I hadn't thought about the Game of Thrones uh, icebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know who would, but um, yeah. So, um, how do you become a better leader? As someone who has to lead people, how do you do that? Do you read books, listen to podcasts, attend conferences, and if so, uh, any specific? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, that you just mentioned, but I think the two things that I, I think for for me it comes down to is really kind of um, observing and listening, which kind of go together in terms of the, the team or, or potential partners. Um, and then I think the biggest thing for me is uh, reflecting. Um, so, you know, there's this tendency where we just all want to go forward and we want to go faster. Um, and sometimes I get caught up in that. But I think, you know, to be able to step back and really reflect on what are we doing? How is the team doing? How are certain individuals doing? Do they know why they're doing what they're doing? Um, and so really reflecting, I think, is the biggest thing that I've learned that I have to do to... Uh, to maintain, um, you know, good leadership characteristics. I think it was Lee Iacocca or it was, it might have, it was someone else like him who every Saturday at 8 p.m. they would just take time and like think about their week and like no one was allowed to bug them. So Yeah, that sounds like mad, magical to me. Between my kids and my house being crazy loud all the time, uh, I would love a, a nice quiet hour to just kind of reflect. But, you know, I think there's there's ways that we do that. I go for runs in the morning. Um, not so much for the physical exercise, but to kind of clean my mind and to get some quiet time to really reflect and, uh, and almost like meditate in some ways, but then also reflect on, um, how things are going or why am I, why am I feeling stressed on certain things and what, you know, what I can do and things like that. So I agree. Quiet time is, is critical. Two thoughts on that, which is, um, the Gordon Ramsay, the chef guy, he does that too. He said like, that's how, like he, he works a lot and he just will run and it kind of like releases everything. And then the, Second thought is, I think it was in Huckleberry Finn where Thomas, Tom, Tom, I think it was Tom, like little boy, he tricks kids into paying him to paint a fence that he had to do. So, which is, which is the example I give for people who have like, like kids and stuff being loud and stuff, try and figure a way for them to work for you. So like, if you want quiet or something like that, think of a way to like make use of their energy so that they, they're being quiet. And then you can kind of think on things. I always, yeah. try, I always try to think of how to repurpose people's energy for my own benefit. Or no, if, no, I, yeah. I, I, I agree 100%. Sometimes I'll be cleaning the house and then I realize, you know, if I make this vacuum seem really exciting and like a reward that he gets the vacuum, like it worked for a couple months where I'd get the vacuum out and he would just beg to do the vacuum and I'm like, hey, go for it. Uh, you're lucky today. You get to do it. And then I'd go do whatever I needed to do. <laughs> uh, can, you, can you name a person who's had a, a tremendous impact on your life? and you know mentor etc and how they impacted your life yeah i think that um i think there's been a lot of people there's been good and there's been bad and and usually i take the good from everyone and i try to you know uh, uh move forward with with all those different things i think you know when i ended grad school i had a uh, an advisor who um really gave me the flexibility to pursue what i wanted to pursue from from the grad school standpoint and also from starting the business standpoint and i, I think without him Allowing that flexibility, I would not be where I would not be doing what I'm doing uh, today. And so that that advisor in grad school really um, had a high impact on me because he let me. He 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 realized that I knew I didn't want to go down that professorship uh, career path, and that everything that I was doing to start the business was about professional development. And I think that's how he uh, was able to allow me to do what I did. So yeah, that that was really what changed the trajectory of of my career for sure. Once again, reminds me of something. Neil Gaiman, who did this commencement speech for Harvard, where he said that the best way to create is to like give yourself time and space to be bored. And so instead of like having a TV going and trying to write, just sit, you know, go for a walk, try not to do something and you'll create a story. So it's it's kind of a similar aspect to your 
graduate work where you, you were given the space to not be bored per se, but to explore and figure things out instead of constantly being bombarded with things that would, you know, just distract you like busy work versus, you know, critical things. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that I, I, I totally agree. And I, you know, I think the other thing going off of commencement speeches, I watched, uh, I watched Jim Carrey give a commencement speech a couple of years ago. And I really liked what he said. And, and I don't really know what, what the validity behind it is, but you got to ask the universe for certain things and kind of visualize where you want to be and um, take the time to actually do that rather than just always try to work and become, you know, more, more papers or more patents or whatever versus just take that time to reflect and really, where do you want to go? And, um, you know, I, I kind of years ago was kind of envisioning the life that I have right now. And in some ways, I have no idea how it actually worked out. But I think that's beyond the point, which is just kind of, you know, knowing where you kind of, you know, knowing, knowing, not, not even what you want to do, but just kind of the area where you kind of would be happy, what you want to do and, and ask for it and to, you know, work towards it. I, I think there's something to that, the Jim Carrey quote of uh, ask the universe for, for something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of the situation where if you ask for it, you kind of know what you want. What do you do when you're not at work? You know, you have kids, you have a wife. There's no yeah. there's no lakes near you, so I don't think you sail anymore. But, <laughs> You're right on that. I'm 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 sad that I don't sail, but yeah, no, I uh, my life is relatively simplistic in the way that I, I work a decent amount, but not not crazy. And I um I drop the kids off in the morning, I go to work, I come back, I pick up the kids, and then I go biking or we play in the in the sprinklers, go to the pool, and then uh, go to bed pretty early. <laughs> so uh, I got, we had a one year old, and a, a one year old, and a three year old. So we're just starting to get out, out of the. Uh, the uh the uh the deep in the thick of it things with the with the little one not sleeping things like that so hopefully it, there'll be more excitement uh in a couple of years with with what i do outside of work <laughs> i'm starting to think that you scientists really like non-prime numbers or because <laughs> the last like four phd scientists i've talked to that have had kids have exactly two kids not one not three <laughs> not it's like two i'll, I'll tell i'll tell you why I, why i think that is is that we've thought about, we've thought about you know having more than two, and then you realize that every car and vehicle is set up for four, and every table and booth is set up for four. <laughs> and when you add that third, it starts to throw things off. Like we were in Hawaii for a spring break, and the rental car had exactly four seats. If we had a third kid, we would have had to either have two cars or get the biggest you know mini bus they had. <laughs> so then, for people who are for hearing about you and are like, oh, this guy, he's cool. Other than going to Living Inc., your website, are there other ways to follow along with your journey? Like a newsletter? I don't know. Anything? Yeah, yeah. We do have we do have a, a newsletter that we send out once in a while, um, and then social media. So Instagram and Facebook, we're pretty active and kind of posting what, where we're where we are and what we're doing and things like that. So, uh, um, yeah. But I also like reaching out on LinkedIn if you ever want to connect uh, directly is also pretty uh, pretty efficient and I'm pretty uh, responsive for the most part. That was Scott Fulbright of Living Inc. We got into his startup journey, his team discussions on board member strategy it's kind of a little nerdy thing to talk about but and a little bit on parenting and why scientists tend to have two children and not three or more other than that i want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever which is called patreon if you go to patreon and look for learning with lowell you'll see this podcast don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we can be found on twitter at lowell this year facebook and on the website learningwithlowell.com also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every monday new episodes every tuesday and new blog posts around every thursday remember to share and tell your friends please and thank you